Here we go on a Monday night. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Happy to be in studio with you, Ira. You are here, but we're doing this one a little bit early. Good reason for that. You got plans tonight. Heat game. Heat Sixers. We'll see what happens. It's Really, I can't. I will be in total shock if the Miami Heat lose this game without Joel Embiid with a hobble James Harden. How the Sixers would come in? I, it would just, I mean, if the Heat lose this game, that means they weren't prepared, they weren't ready. Uh, it's the only reason why they would lose a game like this. I, I agree with you. You almost have to win both of these. Embiid guaranteed to be out the first two. Going to miss Kyle Lowry tonight, I believe. But still, yeah, the Heat have no excuse to not take both of these. Unless games. the Heat go twelve deep in terms of playing, and the Sixers have no depth at all. So it, clearly, this is like the, the Heat. They played an injured Hawks team without Capella and sort of overmatched with them, winning that in five. Now they have the Sixers. I mean, talk about uh, a clear path to the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, certainly when they get there, it looks like they can play Milwaukee or Boston. That's going to be a challenge. <laughs> but the fact that you can sort of get a two-round two by, pretty nice uh, pathway for the Heat. Absolutely it is. And uh, we'll talk more about uh, where you've been this past week because you did see a Heat game as well coming up in a little bit on Iron Sports. So we're loaded tonight, Ira. Four guests popping in. Up first is going to be John Cooper. Tell us about him. Just a great uh, draft guru from our lads. We've had uh, draft gurus the last two weeks. And just sort of a summary about what he felt. I mean, this is a surprise. A lot of things happened in this draft. It's a wacky wild but, and draft. A lot of, and he's not the only, Cooper's not the only one who sort of missed where some of these things were going to happen. And I think I'd like to bring him in to sort of say what he saw happening, what if there's anything during the draft that shocked him. Uh, I'd like to have him come in during a, a sort of a, a post-analysis. I'd be more concerned if someone did pick some of this stuff. You'd think they'd have a crystal ball or a time <laughs> they machine. Should be was, betting, yeah. They should be in Vegas doing more. They should be worrying about the draft. They should be uh, playing the crafts in Vegas. <laughs> uh, Randy Moeller will, will join us uh, after that. You know him if you live in South Florida. He's on the Florida Panthers uh, TV broadcast team, played in the NHL for 20 years. We'll catch up with him, find out where we're at as far as the NFL, uh, NHL playoffs, which start tonight. And then, Ira, this time of year is crazy. People think that things get a little bit uh, more more uh, boring at this time of year. No, because we have the Kentucky Derby this weekend as well. So we're going to bring in Brittany Yurton. Brittany Yurton is the number one if you uh, an analyst in terms of the, a host, TV host. She's on NBC broadcasting for, for the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, and also TVG. So if you want to know about horse racing, Brittany Yurton's the person to talk to. So before we get to uh, John Cooper here, talk about uh, what he as a pro thought about the draft. Let's talk about what we thought and how it actually went down, Ira. We had heard on this show that it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Aiden Hutchinson was going number one. Personally, I thought he was, but the Jacksonville Jaguars decided to buck the popular trend and took the uh, took the defensive end from Georgia first overall. Well, we mentioned about Kirby Smart being the centerpiece of the draft, the coach of Georgia Bulldogs. And not only did they win the national title, they had 15 players taken in the draft, uh, most all on the yeah, defensive it's side. It's a, Considering you have 22 players with special teams, I mean, they're a dire team. You go to Georgia, you play, you start, you're going to be playing. Well, see what happens to Georgia next year. But Trayvon Walker, what's interesting is that people who watch Georgia, like me, the whole year, didn't really look like the best player on the defensive line, let alone the defense. And it's shocking that he then goes number one in the draft and sort of an upside pick. Uh, but again, he was not the centerpiece of the Georgia defense. And I think that that's, that is what it is. It's more what he could be. It's his potential. And that's why some people, even on this show, we had people say Aiden Hutchinson's got a very high floor. 
We know what we're getting out of him. Doesn't mean his ceiling is as high as some of these other guys like Walker. I think the Lions are ecstatic. They got Hutchinson. I think on their board, he was by far the number one defensive lineman from Michigan, staying in Michigan, now playing at Detroit with their, the later pick, a few picks later. They got Jamison Williams. Uh, really good draft there for the Lions. I think it fits out perfectly. We'll see what Walker does for Jacksonville. But I think, I mean, Hutchinson, as someone who wasn't the first pick in the draft, he seemed ecstatic to go to the Lions. And that in itself is a surprise. <laughs> And he's uh, some people did look a little disappointed actually when they when their name was called uh, depending on what teams it were. So Ira, no picks in the you know no draft pick trades. There wasn't any big quarterbacks, and you know we've seen the last couple of years people trading a ransom just to move up to pick two, pick three. Didn't see any of that. Then around pick ten rolled around. And things started going nuts at that draft era. Big name players, wide receivers being moved, picks being moved. It got absolutely crazy there in the second half. Well, the two trades that we're going to talk about would be Marquise Brown traded from the Baltimore Ravens to the Arizona Cardinals. And, and I love this trade because uh, Lamar Jackson, the quarterback of the Ravens, said, I can't believe they traded Marquise Brown. Yeah. Sort of like an Aaron Rodgers thing. But it seemed like Marquise Brown, then it comes out, it's like, oh, what would they do? They're so mean to Lamar Jackson to trade him and all these things. Well, it seems like Marquise Jack- Brown has asked like four times times to be traded. Yeah. He knew he was going to go to Arizona. He was surprising Kyler Murray. It's like, it's sort of like everyone was in on this except Lamar Jackson, that they knew <laughs> they were just accommodating requests. So Marquise Brown was traded. And and as someone who watched the Ravens, I'm you know i just not sold on him. I didn't think he fit in with them. They they seemed they, they drafted two tight ends. That's sort of what they want to run with. They don't want to have these. I just don't think he was that great a player, but put, no, him, as a, put him as a third wide receiver. He wanted to get more touches. I think he was targeted 140 times in, in Baltimore. Now he's going to be like the third wide receiver in in Arizona, so whatever. Be, we'll see what happens if he's happy what he got. But also, A.J. Brown was traded from Tennessee to uh, Philadelphia in a big trade with that. But like, I love what Tennessee did is they got Traylon Burks as their uh, drafted. The, they used that to draft the wide receiver, Traylon Burks. Burks is from Arkansas, and the two wide receivers I love in this draft were wide receivers from schools that I felt had quarterbacks that were awful. And Burks's quarterback, it was a running, it was a running team. He, I can't believe he had 1,100 yards, and he just seemed to make. I watched tapes of him, just amazing catch after amazing catch. You don't have a really accurate quarterback. I was going to say you're not playing with the top end quarterback. And I watched every catch that Jahan Dotson made for Penn State, and trust me, he could. The four string quarterback, almost any team is better than Sean Clifford, and whatever <laughs> Jahan Dotson. I mean, he was catching one hand and not just showboat because the ball was all over the place. I think Jahan Dotson. Now, you're saying he's going to Carson Wentz for the Washington Commanders. Well, Carson Wentz is a million times more accurate than Sean Clifford. So I think these are the two wide receivers. So I really like the Burke signing. I mean, Brown was signed by the uh, uh, for the Eagles for like $25 million a year. They're going to play pay Burks a couple million dollars a year. So it's, we've seen this a lot. Is if you have, if you're paying a lot for a quarterback and you really don't have money for a big time wide receiver either, you have to one and or the they, other. Well, they also pay a running back $15 million plus a year. Yes. And that's something, you know, I, I went to college in Tennessee. I've got a lot of fr- uh, friends that are Titans fans. And I had to show them the set. They're saving $90 million over four years. That money is money that they need for Derrick Henry, need for Ryan Daniel. It's a shame, but they did a good job of immediately replacing him. Um, Cole Strange, you don't see this that often. So Bill Belichick takes a guy who most players had a little bit later. Sean McVay was on film at this. He was being interviewed, and he starts laughing and said, we thought he was going to be there at pick 105 when we were up next. Bill Belichick took him in the first round. So not often you can laugh at Bill Belichick, but this was one instance. Well, it's a guard from Chattanooga. And uh, but it was they had ten picks in the draft. I, I, some of these teams, the Ravens had eleven, the Patriots had ten. So you can really miss on like four of these. So even though 
you have so many picks and some of these are going to be a superstar. You can't just, you can't draft 11 bad players. So I think that as much as the strange pick looks like a reach, the rest of the draft people seem pretty confident that they made some good selections. Yeah, and then you mentioned the Ravens earlier. All these guys do is draft well. I mean, <laughs> you know, your team plays in a division with them, so you know what it's like, but these guys... Every year, they seem to do really well for themselves. Yeah, I mean, they had 11 picks. They had Hamilton, the safety from Notre Dame. They got Linderman, the center from Iowa. And then they owe Jobo, the Michigan defensive lineman, who they got in the second round, who, if he didn't tear his Achilles, would have been uh, one of the top 10 players taken. So it was one of those things where they really, uh, the Ravens are, had a very, very good draft. And I think the tight ends, going back to that whole idea, we're going to just power the ball, have a lot of backs, Lamar Jackson, run it that way, and, and improve their defense because their defense had some holes last year. I think, look, the Ravens did fantastic. Uh, other team in your division, I didn't pick up on this, Ira, but you noticed something interesting with the Bengals. They drafted three safeties. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that every day. Well, they had a lot of weaknesses in the offensive line, which they saw by, by signing a free agency. We're talking about the draft so much, but you have to put the draft in perspective with what they did in free agency because some of these players that we talked about, Khalil Mack going to the Chargers. Like, Khalil Mack to the Chargers is more important than Trayvon Walker. I mean, Khalil Mack is going to make a big difference on the Chargers. Like, it's a huge difference. So the point is you have to put in perspective what they did in the draft and put that at the same time with what they did in free agency. So I like what Philly did as well. Um, later round, I believe it was the third round, they were able to get N'Kobe Dean. Again, another Georgia player. I thought that he was going to be, you know, early on, I thought he was going to be a top 20 pick. And then some injury concerns, he fell, but I thought Philly did really well. Yeah, with Jordan Davis, the uh, oh, it seems like almost 400-pound person who runs uh, faster than wide receivers in, at, in, on the line, two Georgia defensive players. But it was, again, I think that getting, bringing this this Georgia, we're, we're going to see how good, I mean, it'd be interesting. We asked that question to some of our gurus. The fact that so many Georgia players were drafted, or is it because they just were a great defense and worked well together, and then separately, how are these players going to play? I'm interested to see that because this defense was considered one of the greatest defenses of all time. And But maybe it was just because they worked so well together and separately. We'll just see. I, I'm interested to see like a player like N'Kobe Dean, who people viewed as the best person on that defense, went in the third round. It's weird how everything ended up uh, panning out. So who are the quarterbacks that got taken? You guys were first uh, taking one off the board. Well, I think... Like, Shocking, like Pittsburgh, the disinformation they put out. They they said by going that we love Malik Willis, the quarterback from Liberty. They went and saw his pro day. They went and talked about it. They leaked everything, and everyone thought they loved Willis, which then leads people to believe. Well, Pickett's in your building. Your coaches have lunch with the pit coaches all day. You see him every day. If they don't like Pickett, then why should we like Pickett? So they, you know, small hands, small. This is Wonderlook score was bad. They they released everything. Like we're never going to draft Pickett, but of course they had no. <laughs> no interest in drafting Malik Willis. When it first came to 20, I'm like, oh, they're going to draft Malik Willis. They don't. They draft Pickett. And that's they said. And then later they said, oh, fool on everyone. We want to pick it all along. He was by far the quarterback we wanted. Mm. And the more thing is that when I saw you were waiting for Carolina to pick a quarterback, you're waiting for the Saints or the Falcons, no one picked quarterbacks. And I think that's what the whole draft was, that Pickett went at 20, and then you're waiting, okay, what's going to happen in the second round? You didn't even get Atlanta at Desmond River in the third round. Ten Malik Willis doesn't go to the third round with the 22nd pick to Tennessee, and then Matt Corral, who a lot of people said could be a first-round pick from Mississippi, he goes to Carolina in the third round with a 30th pick in the third round. So these quarterbacks did drop, and I think people, nobody would have predicted what would happen with these quarterbacks. Even a quarterback, some people mentioned as a first-round pick, Carson Strong out of Nevada, wasn't even drafted yeah. in the draft. And Sam Howell, who people said, oh, that's a second-round pick from North Carolina, went to Washington in the fifth round. So that was the one. I think that leads to believe is that teams want to win now, 
teams did not view these quarterbacks worth wasting any picks on at all. That they weren't, if they're not going to contribute, we're not going to draft someone who's going to be a second or third round quarterback. And the fact that so many teams are set at quarterback, I really think a lot of teams made these moves and like, look, I've invested so much money. We're paying Deshaun Watson all this money. I don't I, for their backup. I don't want a rookie. I want someone who's knowledgeable and can step in immediately. So I think that's what happened. Why these quarterbacks dropped, and then next year you're going to see. a good quarterback crop, and a lot of people say, well, if we didn't get a quarterback this year, definitely, I'm not going to waste one quarterback pick this year when I know I'm going to have to pick someone next year. So, let's talk about wide receivers, Ira. This was another, it was a deep wide receiver class, but not so much high end. There was no Jamar Chase. So, it really led to a, who's going to be the first one taken? It ended up, Drake London was the first uh, receiver taken at number eight to Atlanta. He didn't look thrilled about it. Won't lie, but uh, regardless, he was the first one. Ha- what went after that? And not sold with Drake London also at, at USC. They said he's great in, in what he's, we've had all the advisors, all the gurus say he's great when in catching when there's a lot of pressure around him. It's not when he's not getting separation, but that means he doesn't get separation. He's not really wide open because he's not running, he's not fast enough, really. But Garrett Wilson of the Ohio State went to the Jets. Chris Olave went to the Saints. And the pick I absolutely love. I think the stud of this entire draft, Jamison Williams of Alabama went to the Lions, uh, putting it with Amon St. Brown, uh, with Jared, Jared Goff has, to me, two of the best wide receivers. I love what the Lions did. I think Jamison Williams will recover from the uh, Achilles tendon, I mean the Achilles, the ACL, and he'll be healthy middle of the year, and he'll he'll end up being the best wide receiver of this class. I love that one. We talked about Dotson going to Washington. Uh, You're waiting for Green Bay and Kansas City. Both lost their star wide receivers. Green Bay drafted Christian Watson of North Dakota State in the second round and Romeo Dubes from Nevada in the second. You know, again, you're just waiting for them. They didn't really get the elite wide receiver that you expected from Green Bay. And I was shocked at Kansas City. I was waiting for something for them. In the second round, they just waited and drafted Sky Moore from Western Michigan. And that was it. I was like, what more? I mean, I was waiting for something more from, they drafted Sky Moore, but waiting for something else from, <laughs> from the Chiefs at that point. But, of course, I love, I love the Steelers pick of George Pickens. George Pickens is at Georgia. Uh, he was a great wide receiver his first two years. Beginning of his third year, he tears his ACL. Okay, season's over, whatever. He works his way back, comes back, does everything they want in the middle of the year. He is 6'3", long arms, he's fast, and, and by the end of the year in the championship game, he made some big-time catches. I think he fits in perfectly with the Steelers. What a pick. And, you know, the Steelers have been amazing at picking these wide receivers in the later rounds. They're, they're experts at that, and I think he's going to be one of the long line of great Steeler wide receivers. Yeah, nobody drafts receivers better than the Steelers, so you always have to put your eye on someone when the Steelers uh, take him off the board. Then with running backs, Ira, this might be the first draft in my entire life where a running back didn't go in the first round. Never happens. Yeah, and, and Jets, though, should be happy with Brees Hall of Iowa State, someone they can uh, pair with Michael Carter. At the, but I think the, the the back, if you're looking for fantasy, Seattle, Ken Walker from Michigan State. Anybody who watched the Big Ten football this year saw Walker dominating every game. was amazing. I think going to Seattle, he's going to win that job. And if you're looking for someone who's going to carry the ball 20, 25 times a game, catch the ball in the backfield, that's going to be Ken Walker. Perfect situation. And James Cook going to Buffalo in the second round. Buffalo's had this problem running. I mean, it seems like they do everything but run the football. Uh, and James Cook, I think, is gonna a great addition to that team. And Brian Robinson uh, to uh, Washington from, from Alabama went to the uh, Commanders, Washington Commanders. Hard to keep remembering to say the Commanders, but he went <laughs> to the Commanders on there, so I like that pick. And oh, Damian Pierce went to the Texans. Uh, the Texans really don't have Rex Burkhead, so running back. I mean, he's going to get some time there. And Houston get a chance to really contribute to the team. 
Let's go to John Cooper here. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9. Uh, we're honored to have John Cooper, a draft guru. And I love how we're going to bring a guru on after the draft. <laughs> so, John, thanks a lot for coming on and talking about what happened this weekend in Las Vegas. Well, it was, uh, it was quite an experience, I want to tell you. And I wasn't there. I was watching on TV at home like most people. <laughs> So, so John, you work for our lads, uh, uh, dot com, which is great, a great source in terms of uh, analyzing the draft and also going forward to look at depth charts. I, I use our lads to actually, when I go to a game, I print out the rosters. You have the most updated rosters with the numbers, which is the most important thing. But um, anyway, what? Let's go to quarterbacks first. What? I mean, I heard Malik Willis going six, Kenny Pickett going six to Carolina. Like, what happened with the quarterbacks all dropping? The Steelers got who they wanted. To pick it at 20 and then everyone else was in the third and fourth and fifth rounds you know that's really funny because we've gone back and forth on those quarterbacks uh, you know for our opinion we, we started looking at these guys we didn't think there was a first round quarterback worth worth a grade <clears throat> but we also know that every year uh, what happens is you know people say well it's not a great year for quarterbacks this guy's a mid first rounder he's a second rounder and there's a, a run on quarterbacks because people want them. And all of a sudden, five quarterbacks go in the first round, three or four in the, in the top ten. It happens. It seems to happen every year. This year, for some reason, it stayed true to what the original thought process was about these guys, uh, that this is a, a year of a lot of backups and developmental prospects in the quarterback class. And uh, so, yeah, we went and thought, okay, we could see in our mock draft Pittsburgh taking Malik Willis. Uh, we could see maybe three quarterbacks going in the first round because of the need. But uh, the way it happened, only one went in the first. It was pick. Uh, he was the only one that we thought was NFL ready from the get-go uh, when we really started evaluating. And so it went according to the way we thought early on. Is there a player that dropped that you were really surprised about? Like it, not just the first round drop, but any drops where you're like, I just can't believe it. And did you learn information later? Or just think that maybe people missed him. You know, someone who, who you guys have, because you watch a lot of tapes, you analyze your former football coach yourself. Is there a player that, that dropped that you just say, couldn't believe that dropped so much? Well, yeah, they, for sure. And, and the one thing is that teams look at players differently. Their schemes, their, uh, their philosophy. So we're looking at it generically. You know, we have to say, okay, this is what we would do if we were drafting for a, for a team, and uh, we have to kind of go with what we feel, but understand there could be a lot of variance based on the type of offense and defense these teams are playing. And the other thing is we have no access to the medical reports. For example, we were not aware of the situation with Nicobe Dean, who we were very surprised dropped out of the first round. Which maybe some other people knew before we did, was that uh, you know the medical issue had to do with a pec muscle and whether or not surgery or not, and some teams were worried that they weren't going to have him on the field. You know, they're, they're, they want, you want your first round draft choice to be on the field, and I can understand that. So a lot of teams decided, no, we're not going to take that risk. And the Kobe Dean is going to be a good football player, whether it's this season or not, it remains to be seen. So um, that was the one that surprised us, not having the information. 
What team did you think had a, you know, we throw this term around, good drafts. I mean, I'm sure when the Steelers drafted five Hall of Famers back in the 70s, no one said, oh, they had the best draft. But, but on paper, I mean, people seem to like the Jets draft. But from your perspective, who had a, like, boy, this was, they really addressed their needs. They had a good draft. Well, let me qualify that by saying the draft is like fine wine. You don't know what you have till it ages for a while. <laughs> and so you know, there's been some great drafts that uh, were had, you know, got D grades from the pundits early on. So we like to hold off at least until the OTAs are before we, before we really evaluate or give any kind of an average, below average grade. But as far as meeting needs are concerned and what looks like on paper, the Jets obviously with uh, three first-round picks and, and a really solid running back who we had as a uh, 33rd guy on our board who went, uh, you know, who went to, to them in the early second round. So obviously New York, you know, just paper, you know, getting players like uh, Ahmad Gardner, Derek Wilson, and Jermaine Johnson in the first round, and Brees Hall, and then a good tight end and Jeremy Ruckert, who we think uh, is a somewhat of a sleeper. In the third round, uh, he did, you know, Ohio State's offense, he wasn't featured because of the other guys they had. And uh, we think he's a solid tight end. And it was, so, inter- yeah, they, they had a great draft. Baltimore had a good draft. So a lot of, you know, a lot of teams did very well. A lot of talent in this draft. Is there a team where you're like, well, I mean, again, when I think when the Patriots pick Cole Strange from Chattanooga, they're like, who's he? He should have been. But after that, but is there a team where you're like, what were they doing? I know the Cowboys have got a little criticized on their draft choice. And, you know, when you're, when you're defending it so much and those things. But what is there any team that you felt just didn't hit it at the, this draft? Well, we, we really hesitate to say a team didn't hit it. You know, there are some surprises there. You know, like I say, Dallas taking Tyler Smith. We had a second round, an early second round grade on Tyler Smith, an offensive tackle. So that's not a big reach by any stretch of the imagination. And they may have gotten first round talent with Sam Williams. A lot of people are concerned about off the field issues with him. Uh, and that has got some people scratching their heads. They thought maybe he'd go lower because of that. But supposedly they've checked him out and uh, they're confident he's going to play. But uh, other than that, you know, Jalen Tolbert's a solid wide receiver, and Jake Ferguson, we think, is a very good tight end. So, you know, other than those first two picks, you know, we don't think that that was a, you know, a crazy draft by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, it was a lot of football players in this draft, a lot of good players, you know, they're kind of backed up after the COVID year. And uh, so, you know, for a couple of years, with uh, the fifth year with some of these guys, sixth year in some cases, uh, a lot of good football players uh, in this draft. But, more than we looked at in the past. And then I guess the you know I know this is a real. I'm going to ask you a really hard question because I like you know certainly for fantasy perspective and those things. But who would you think? Now it's not just not saying he's the best player, but the best fit. Which player do you think could be quote offensive rookie of the year from? Probably not the quarterback position this year, but the wide receivers, the running backs. Who do you look from the offensive side, and maybe even also the defense? We were seeing a Micah Parsons from last year come and become the defensive rookie of the year. Like who on the offense and defense do you think actually was drafted in the situation that's perfect for them to succeed next year? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Drake London. Uh, he was our top wide receiver, wide receiver from the get go, and the, obviously the injury that he had. You know, dropped him down on some boards, and uh, and then after he had, a, you know, then moved him back up, you know, things of that nature. But Drake London to me is a tremendous football player. He's like a power forward playing football. He can go up and get off, 
blocked radius. He can shield defenders from keeping him from getting the ball. He's going to frustrate some, some defensive backs and those 50-50 balls because they're not going to be 50-50 balls. They're going to be 75-25 <laughs> balls. He's going to get them. So that's a guy that we really like and think he's a unique player. He's not as fast as maybe some of the other receivers, but he doesn't need to be. Uh, he, he's going to make an awful lot of plays. He accelerates well, run after the catch, things of that nature. That's the guy that I would peg. I'm really anxious to see you know, what he does because we really think he's an excellent football player. What about on the defensive, uh, defensive side? Well, on defense, we've been very, very high on Derek Stingley from the get-go as well. Uh, and we never came off of Stingley or London, even though they both had injuries. And uh, he's a very unique talent as a corner and his ability to mirror and match route breaks. But uh, you just don't see that very often. So, Stingley uh, a lot. The other guy is Aiden Hutchinson. You know, we're a big fan of, of his. Uh, you know, I know that um, Trayvon Walker went ahead of him. And I got to believe that Jacksonville was thinking long and hard about that. But uh, we think Hutchinson, with his motor and the, the things that he can do, you know, we think he's going to be uh, a, a Pro Bowl player for a long time. And uh, you know, we look we look at him as a guy that we think um, could be, you know, your maybe the best player in this draft. You know, it's interesting when you say Stingley because you're one of the few that said that. A lot of people felt that was a risk. He's the defensive back from LSU that went to Houston Texans, but people forget that Lovey Smith is now the coach, a defensive mind uh, with that team, and who's developed how many great secondary uh, players as he developed over the years. So maybe that is the perfect spot for him to uh, to become the superstar player. Well, you know, I mean, they're going to play a lot of cover two down there, so he's going to play on some hard corners, so he's going to have to be able to things of that nature, but a lot of teams forget that they matched that cover too with a lot of man-free You know when he was in Chicago. And uh, that's a part of that scheme, so he's going to be a very good match corner. Um, and, you know, the injury is a factor. Can he stay healthy? That's the only question that I had about him is he had two years of ten games that he played because of injury. But, uh, you know, if he can stay healthy, he's going to be phenomenal. On the other hand, I think Hutchinson will be healthy, and he's going to be—he's going to be a very, very good player. And talk just for a second about what happens now. We had seven rounds of draft choices uh, of players taken, um, but there are a lot of good players that weren't drafted. I just saw where Justin Ross, uh, the former Clemson wide receiving star who was pegged a couple years ago before injury to be a first-round pick, was just signed by Kansas City Chiefs. What's going on now? Like some players almost said, I don't want to be drafted in the seventh round. I want to you know, work around and use my agent to help a team and, and get the perfect situation for me. Well, no question. In fact, that's exactly what happens. When you get into that seventh round of that draft, the scouts start calling players that they had scouted that if they don't get drafted, we're, they're going to tell them, we're interested in signing you. And they've got a certain amount of bonus money they're allowed to give, so they're going to put some signing bonuses onto these guys that they wouldn't have necessarily got if they were draft choices. And uh, you, can, you, know, you can't go too far with uh, the bonuses. There's rules against that. But the one thing you can do is you can guarantee money. For example, the quarterback from uh, Nevada, uh, Strong, you know, he was, I read, got guaranteed contract from the Eagles, uh, which, you know, is kind of unique. Not the whole contract, but uh, so if he gets cut, he's going to have 300 and some thousand dollars guaranteed. So that's a, that's a pretty good incentive. So, yeah, there's a scramble 
forget these guys. Uh, I've heard some crazy stories about <laughs> about uh, teams, what they're doing to try to make sure they get the best free agent class. And this year, you know, in talking to people and looking at our boards, there was an awful lot of guys that went undrafted that uh, were had draftable grades. And on the other hand, there's a lot of guys that we had as free agent grades that got drafted. <laughs> you know, guys taking a chance on guys. So th- this is an interesting year because – there was so much talent. It was it was one of the most difficult years to predict who was going to get drafted and who wasn't in that sixth and seventh round. And uh, because of the evenness of the talent and having so many good players available, and, and as you said, there's a you know you know a guy like Ross going. We had a third round grade on. Understand injuries dropped him down. Uh, you know, signing as a free agent, but there, there's a, there's a lot of other ones like that too. Guys that were fifth, fourth round, fifth round grades, sixth round grades that um, ended up being free agents that uh, people were scrambling to get. Well, thanks again, John. I appreciate you for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you. Enjoyed it. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So. Ira, you um, you had one of your quieter weeks because there just wasn't much to do here in South Florida, but you did take in a uh, you did take in a Heat game and you got to see them close it out. Yeah, they they won ninety seven ninety four. It was interesting in this game is that uh, Jimmy Butler sits out almost as a rest game. He it, it came out of nowhere that his, had knee inflammation and Kyle Lowry was out. Now Lowry's going to miss this game, but um, boy, the Heat just did it. Like what they have done the entire series to shut down Trey Young for the series. He shot twenty nine percent, averaged fifteen points a game. Playoffs last year, thirty points a game. This regular season, 29. But it was like, and Victor Oladipo came in that game, 23 points. He played fantastic. Tyler Hero, 16 points. Max Struess, 15. But it was like the game changed. 40-37, 2.30 left in the first half. And the Heat said, we're just going to end it now. They start pressing, and they went on a 17-0 run in like two minutes. Made it 54-40. And really, that game was, the Hawks made it close at the end. But this was a series that just the defense, bolsters coaching, uh, they were really able to shut down. Atlanta. So what happened with uh, Philly and Toronto? That ended up going a little longer than I thought it well, was. Well, it was it was 3-0, and then Doc Rivers blew, he has blown three 3-1 leads. So it was 3-1, and then he ends up losing game five in Philly. It was one of those games where the Raptors won 103-88. Uh, they didn't have Van Fleet. They really had nobody, and they ended up uh, just, again, a terrible performance by Philadelphia. Harden was awful, and B just didn't look excited for the game to lose a closeout game by 15 at home. But then they came back into, uh, into Toronto where there was pressure all week. They ask around, what is the problem with the Sixers? What's going to happen? They ended up blowing out the Toronto 132-97. to 97. But the whole thing of the game was this. I mean, Embiid at 33 points, Harden at 22 points, 15 assists. But at 7.29 left, Embiid had a layup, and they were up ahead by 26 points. Then at 6.49, Embiid had a 14-foot shot. They're up 27 points. At 4.34 left, uh, the Harris had a two-point shot, and the, the Sixers were up 27 points. And I keep looking and saying, why are they not taking Embiid and Harden out? Embiid is injury-prone. Harden's injury-prone. Like, take them out of the game, and they would not. You're up 27. You could just turn the ball over every time and still win the game. At 4-10, Embiid had a dunk. They're up 29 points. Please take them out. They still don't take them out. But then with a formal to go. Pascal Siakam of Toronto charges into Bead, uh, has an or causes an orbital fracture in his head, and Bead is now out games one and two, maybe three and four, maybe for the series. 
Why in the world was he in the game? It was ludicrous for him to be in that game. They were up 30 points with four minutes to go in the game. I just, uh, Doc Rivers, I don't know what he was thinking. It was a terrible, and it, again, it's just a mistake from coaching from Rivers' part to have him out. And now, uh, you know, look, look, you know, Miami is a heavy favorite on Philadelphia. So I think really that was keeping Embiid in the game was what cost them. And talk about the Raptors. I really like their future. They have Scotty Barnes from Florida State, rookie who played well this year. Preston Achua, the who from the Heat, started playing great. They'll have Siakam back, Van Fleet back. I really like, I think the Raptors going forward is going to have a good year next year. And then what happened with the uh, Bucks and Bulls? Well, the Bucks again, this is what we saw. They, Milwaukee is just, they don't have Chris Middleton. It doesn't matter. Uh, Clint, uh, Portis had 14 points, 18 boards. Bobby Portis, Grayson Allen third, had 13. Uh, the Bulls had no Zach Levine. But this game is just, it was just a total blowout. The, the Bucks were never in contest. You know, there was, I think the whole series felt like the one game they dropped was just a surprise, but the other four, they won easily. The Bucks won. And I like, you know, again, I like what the Bulls future. Patrick Williams was developed really well this year. DeRozan. Avucevic, Dasamu, if they get Ball, Lonzo Ball back, they have a. I, I like their future too, just like I like the like the Raptors' future. But in this series against Giannis, they just had no match for him. I don't think anybody anticipated Boston sweeping Brooklyn here. A lot of people took them to win, but not necessarily in this fashion. Remember, this game was on Monday night. We finished our show, ran home to watch it, and they mentioned that Nick Claxton was 0 for 10 for the foul line. I go, I don't remember Nick Claxton being at the line so much for the Nets, but it was 0 for 10 for that game. <laughs> so, But it was like one of those things where I think Durant scored 39 points. He was just 13 for 31, 311 from three. But here's a team, they ended up losing 116-112. They, they made it close to the end, but here's a team that was the favorite, the favorite to win the NBA Finals with Harden, who was had to leave the team with Irving and with uh, with Durant, and they ended up getting swept in the first round by Boston. Nothing but a complete disaster. Steve Nash will be fired. There'll be changes made. But uh, and then Kyrie Irving, the, you know, after the game, said he's going to be part of the management of the team in terms of him <laughs> Durant. And he said maybe the maybe the GM and the owner can join in with the meetings. He got blasted for that. It's just this team, and and I think after watching this, I think. Next Next year, no one's going to think as, as much as Durant uh, is viewed as one of the greatest players in the game. But this was a mess. You need to have continuity, and it was you know they won four series, they won four games, they were close, but uh, just to get swept when you're the favorite to win the NBA championship, pathetic. And then what uh, we had game one start up, it was Milwaukee and Boston. And Milwaukee looked convincingly why they're the champs. Wow. You know, I thought so too. And I think they're going to win. I, I, I'm going to keep picking the Heat. But this is this is what I saw last year from Giannis. He's elevated himself to be the best player in the NBA. Uh, he's better than LeBron. He was He's had a bad game. Nine for 25, over two from three-point line, uh, six for 11 from the foul line. But he's still at 24 points, 13 boards, 12 assists. And the play of the whole playoffs where he was moving and, and trying to the basket, got himself caught in the air, just decided, what do I do? Just throw it up against the backboard, catch it, and dunk it. Uh, just amazing. But they're getting play from Portis and Lopez. The, the, the Bucks, I mean, the, the Celtics are a big team with Robert Williams and Tatum, but they look small. Like, Lopez and Portis and Giannis were just big, and they just could do whatever they wanted on the boards. Grayson Allen, they're, is, they're not missing Middleton because Grayson Allen comes in and just drains threes left and right. And now Marcus Smart is beat up. Jalen Brown played terrible shot, 4 4 13. Uh, Boston had to take 53 point shots. They made 18, but they were outmatched, and, and this was a big win. Milwaukee goes into Boston, wins game one, really puts a lot of pressure. I mean, if Boston loses game two, then, then there's no chance. So, again, when you lose, it's great to have the home court advantage, which Boston had, but
when you lose that game one at home to a quote a better team, you're in, you're in trouble. Let's uh, let's hop out to the West here as we had to see the Suns deal with a pretty pesky New Orleans Pelicans team. Well, this is the Pelicans team that I feel like we talk about the future of a team, and you're saying what the future is. Uh, their future is super bright. If they could just get Zion healthy, they did everything right. They showed so much enthusiasm in the series. Uh, it was one of those things where the Suns won without Booker. Now, I agree, Booker was hurt, but uh, in Game 5, they won 112-97. Miles Bridges, who people do not talk about for the Suns, he's he's played every single game, 309 games that he's played in the NBA, every single playoff game, 27. Uh, he was 31 points. He's the best defender in the league, and he comes back and he, and he can score like that. Um, and this is, and Paul had a good game, 8-22 to 22 points, 8-19 to 19 points. And then in Game 6, the closeout game where they had to go to New Orleans and you're waiting for New Orleans to take this to make it a Game 7. Booker was back, only played 32 minutes. But Chris Paul, in a closeout game, 14 for 14, 1 for 1 for 3-point line, 4 for 4 from the foul line, 33 points, 8 assists. What a game from Chris Paul. Money game, wins it, and uh, just really, like a, again, the Suns now are looking how the Suns looked for the whole year. And again, the Pelicans for next year, they put him with uh, Brandon Ingram, C.J. McCollum, all the rookies. I love, this. I love the Pelicans next year. Uh, what about um, Dallas and uh, Utah? Wow, Game 5. So this was another one of those series. was 2-2. They go to uh, Dallas for Game 5, and Doncic came back, uh, was back in the lineup. They rolled by 102-77. to Wasn't even close. Uh, what a disaster for, for, Dallas, for, for Utah. Donovan Mitchell played terrible. The Jazz shot 3 for 30 from 3-point line. 3 for 30. And then they go back into um, Game 6 in Utah, and you're just waiting for like Utah to push this to a Game 7. But at the end of the game, uh, it was like it was like one of those weird type of games where no one could score at the end of the game. Luka missed a shot, Jazz, and then the Jazz, Mike Conley, had a chance to take the lead. He travels with the ball, um, and, that, that, and then at the end of the game, Bogdanovich had a wide-open three-point shot to win the game for Utah. He misses it. They miss the they missed that. The series is over. They lose. And there could be, even though everyone signed, it looks like this coach, Quinn Snyder, could move on. Conley could be gone. Gobert could be gone. Mitchell, everything changes. But Dallas advances for the first time. I mean, it seems like Luka's been in the playoffs for a while, but it's their first time since 2011 when they won the championship with Dirk. Did they actually advance to the uh, uh, the next round for the playoffs? And uh, now Suns play the Mavericks. And I want to say, I cannot see the Mavericks taking a game. I mean, nothing. I mean, this is I another, that in the last round, too, I, though. I just, do not. I think the Suns sweep this. I think the Suns with Booker back. I think the, the Dallas offense is Doncic dribble, dribble, dribble. The Suns have too much, and I think it's a sweep. I think that that this is. I think the Suns sweep them. Uh, we had Memphis had to beat Minnesota to move through. Both teams are crazy. Both teams are nuts. Both leads. It was the first time in NBA history a team was down twice in the fourth quarter and by more than 10 points. It came back and won. And then, set up for, and then Memphis said, okay, we've done it twice. Let's do it three times. And in game six, they came back and they outscored Minnesota. They were down 84-74. Now scored 40-22 in the fourth. Uh, and it was like one of those things with John Morant in the game five had this game-winning shot to win the game. In game six, you had Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks all played great. Uh, Brandon Clark. Uh, this is just, it, it was one of those games. Minnesota was the better team. Anthony Edwards had 30 points uh, in the final game. They, they seemed to have these leads. They could not keep them. They played two helter-skelter. They, they just blew the series. It just seems to me that Memphis is this team. Both teams had leads then blown. And uh, But Memphis, Minnesota's young. You think that they'll learn from this and be back next year because they do have so much young talent. And then what about um, Golden State-Denver? Well, what I'm going to say is this. Everyone keeps saying Nikolai Jokic. 
Well, he shouldn't be the MVP. Watch the end. First of all, they battled back. They were, they were, they were, it was 4-0, 3-0. They won the one game 3-1. And then they forced the game five. And you joke at the end of the game had two free throws, a 13-foot shot, 19-foot shot, 10-foot shot, 9-foot shot. I mean, he ended up scoring 12 points in the final three minutes. And he was just only matched by Curry, Steph Curry, who was just hitting every single shot. And I know it was like a 12:30 night. It was so late. Everyone's asleep. But I'm watching this. I'm like, wow, Joe Cook is playing against Curry. And I think Denver next year, when they have all their players back, they're missing Jamal Murray. They were missing Michael Porter Jr. They're going to be great. But Golden State looked absolutely fantastic. Uh, and uh, what, a, what a win over Denver. And then that leads into the, the Warriors-Memphis game, which we saw last night, yesterday. And the Warriors won 117-116 in Memphis. Yeah. And people were surprised. They're like, wait, whoa, did the Warriors, weren't they the two seed? No, they were the three. They were playing at Memphis. And everything went Memphis's way. Draymond Green was thrown out of the second quarter for fouling Brandon Clark, which actually he probably should have been. He, he, he fouled him in the face, which was not so bad, but then he grabbed him by his shirt and threw him down. And so Draymond Green got thrown out of the game. Clay Thompson was in foul trouble. Steph Curry was in foul trouble. Um, but Clay, with uh, 36, seconds, 36 seconds left, hit a three. John Morant missed a layup. Uh, then Clay missed two foul shots, and they should have got the offensive rebounds, but they didn't review it because of the new review rules. And then John Morant had a chance to win the game again, and he drove by, and Clay came in. He went past Kerry Payton Jr., and then Clay Thompson made a great push out. Morant misses that layup, and uh, that was the end of the game. But uh, the Warriors went super small. They had Wiggins, Curry, Clay Thompson, Gary Payton, and Poole. I mean, no player above like 6'6 on the court, and that's what they played with lots of the game. But Jordan Poole, 31 points, Steph had 24 points, and uh, just a, I think. The the Memphis I, Memphis might steal a game, but I still think this is still a sweep. I think Memphis is too helter skelter. There's points in the game where they go crazy, and the Warriors are smart enough to take advantage of that. So we are shaping up from to a I really think a Heat Bucks final and a Warriors Suns final. I'm but I'm still excited for the next two weeks for basketball. Let's go to former Formula One driver Raul Bosell here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 95.9 We're honored to have. Uh, Raul Bosel, one of the most famous drivers in the world. He has won the 24 Hours of Daytona. We second the 24 Hours of Le Mans. 14 starts at Indy 500, finishing third and fourth. He's the world sports car champion. Raul, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports and talking about the Miami Grand, uh, Formula One Grand Prix that's this weekend. Yes, uh, you're, you're welcome. And it's a pleasure to speak with you and... Uh, I'm in the other side of the world, basically. I'm in uh, Indonesia, so I'm uh, uh, 12 hours ahead of you. So <laughs> uh, maybe I, I will know the result of the Grand Prix before you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, but Raul, you, you 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 lived in Miami for many years, and so first of all, this is exciting here. It's coming to it's coming to Fort Lauderdale through the Hard Rock Stadium. In terms of your impact, you've raced all around the world. What do you think this means to have the, the Formula One in Miami, and now it's going to be a regular occurrence as, an, as a stop? Well, I think it's great for the city and for the, for the state. And, uh, you know, Miami is already uh, a place uh, no worldwide for tourism and, uh, the, the, you know, the uh, aspects of... Uh, uh, I mean, uh, all the good things, right? And is a is a is a place, a very international place. And uh, this proved uh, 
from different races that uh, used to be a race in downtown, uh, in Bayside, then uh, uh, IndyCar races and in the city. And now, of course, Formula One is the 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 ethical in motor racing. So um, I think uh, I'm sure you're already feeling the atmosphere on the city about the race, and uh, it's only the, the it will be the first year, so it's uh, uh, only can grow from from uh, this year on. And talk about, you know, the growth of Formula One in terms of, I mean, it's been great around the world, but now you're getting some of the races in America. There's going to be one in Las Vegas next year. There's always been one in Texas. Just the, the growth of Formula One in America and excitement for Formula One racing. Well, if you see, you know, the America is a, is a big market for the car companies. Uh, I just see today that... Uh, it's been announced that in the 2026 Porsche and uh, Audi gonna get into Formula One, and uh, Porsche is, is, is been there before. Audi will be, if I'm not mistaken, for the first time. So uh, is is uh, like uh, the country that sell more Ferraris is the United States, sell more Mercedes is the United States. Sell Audis and uh, and Porsches United States, so uh, it's very important market for them. And uh, now the the promoters of uh, the, the Formula One are uh, American group, which by the way, uh, doing a lot better and, and uh, doing an amazing job to to promote Formula One. Right, and then. You know, the one interesting thing about this course, people are confused. It's not running into the uh, Hard Rock Stadium where the Dolphins play. It's actually going around the stadium. But it's going to supposedly there'll be places for the, the, the passing. Because we think of Formula One sometimes with Monaco where it's very hard to pass. But they're trying to make this a more exciting race and there'll be areas to pass and have that type of exciting race in terms of different than it was like, say, downtown Miami or something. Well, uh the, the first choice was to do a circuit around the, uh, around the city, which uh, uh, happened before in, in uh, Indy cars and, and in sports cars. But uh, I think because of uh, noise and uh, things like that, they moved to the to the hard rock. And uh, but uh, even like that, it will be great. You know, uh, the, the public go there uh, on TV will not be as 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 uh, charming as Monaco because you don't have the ocean around. But uh, uh, I'm sure it will be a success. And uh, is uh, so many circuits like that in the Formula One calendar that uh, uh, is, is not surprised that uh, one more like this uh, with. Uh, uh, say the China is like that. Uh, uh, so many other 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 circuits are, are like these temporary circuits. So uh, it will be great. So one thing that's happened this year is they went to a different car. I mean, it's hard for a layperson to see the differences in the cars, but it's a different car, and it's now opening it to more teams having a chance to win. You're seeing Ferrari back, McLaren, along with Mercedes and, and Red Bull, all racing well. So that's something that this year they changed, so there's more teams competing for the championship. 
Yes, it was uh, new rules for the aerodynamic of the cars. And uh, if you see some someone have more success than the others, uh, by surprise, Mercedes being have a tough time. Uh, Ferrari improved a lot. Uh, um, Red Bull um, keep keep the good work and uh, being competitive. But uh, you see small teams uh, became uh, more competitive, like the, the Haas team, which is basically, you know, an American team, not based in America, but is, is uh, backing by the Americans. So uh, um, that's, that's great for the, for the sport, you know, uh, small teams with less budget that doesn't have an engine manufacturer behind. So... Uh, could be running the top ten. You know, this is, is, is great for the for the sport. Now you've raced. You raced. You started in Brazil. You ran there, and then you were in, of course, all around the world. When for terms of Formula One, World Sports Car, Le Mans. But we haven't seen the and then you ran in the Indy 500 14 times. But we haven't seen recently the American drivers come into Formula One. Do you see a move, maybe? Will there be? Is there a name I should be thinking about of, a, of an American driver racing soon in Formula One? Uh, um, yes, one, uh, one uh, young driver that uh, uh, pops out now, and he's in, uh, in IndyCar. He's, um, uh, I just uh, have the name in my, my top, um, Hertha. His son name is Hertha. Is is uh, the uh, son of Brian Hertha, which is uh, I race against, and uh, he's the one I think is maybe promising uh, driver to Formula One. I think potential driver for Formula One, young, and uh, I think uh, the the Formula One needs an American driver and. Uh, I think uh, he's in the top of the, the in the top of the list to become the next American driver in Formula One. And I'm a big fan of Formula One. I watch it every morning. I, even if I have to get up at five in the morning and six in the morning, I'm in LA. It's like three. Mm-hmm. I watch it. But I watched it all last year, and I thought the the final race between Verstappen and Hamilton, and that final lap where they made the I thought the poor decision. But what did you think about that final race when it came between Verstappen and Hamilton, and actually the final decision on the final lap to allow Verstappen to come right behind Hamilton? I think it was a wrong decision. I think, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, Hamilton. Uh, is the champion. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> so, but, so uh, uh, yeah, creates a lot of controversy, but that's my... Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, they, they change the rules and, and, uh, in, in five minutes, and uh, was wrong, was wrong. Well, Raul, we've been talking to Raul Bosel, past former Formula One driver, Indy 500 driver, uh, all the way from Indonesia, (laughs) is calling right now. So thanks a lot, Raul, for coming (laughs) on IRAM Sports. I really appreciate you giving some insight and some uh, excitement for the Miami Formula One that's coming up this weekend. Okay, I hope you had a lot of work and a lot of coverage and... uh... Uh, I'm sure you you go to the race, so enjoy it. 
<laughs> Thank you. I can't wait to go. I'll be there this weekend. Thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. Iron Sports there, true oldie channel. Great stuff from Raul Bosell. Bring in Randy Moeller of the Florida Panthers here on Iron Sports. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm getting excited for the playoffs. Yeah, me too. They start tonight. This is really exciting stuff. So, Randy, obviously, big congratulations to the Florida Panthers' first ever uh, President's Trophy in their team's history. They're the number one overall seed. But I look at the East, Randy, and man, th- you can kind of make a case for every single team in the East. It's really stacked, and I think we're going to have a lot of battles, especially here in the first round. Yes, and uh, for the first time in the, NH- the history of the NHL, all eight teams qualifying in the Eastern Conference had at least 100 points. Never seen that before, and that, that just proves that there's some real powerhouses in the East. And as you mentioned, all those eight teams, whether you're first like the Florida Panthers or the Washington Capitals that got the eighth seed as the second wildcard team, everybody has a chance. And there really is no uh, complete whitewashes that, that are going to happen, I don't believe, both in the East and the Western Conference. Very competitive. And the way that the, the, the NHL is set up right now and the, with the rosters, and especially in the salary cap era that we're in right now, it is, is given a lot of... Um, a close competition, and there's there's no teams that have 100 points and no teams that got, you know, 35 points. Those days are long gone. So it makes it very competitive and very interesting, especially in the first round. It's just unfortunate, though, that, Mike, that, that uh, there's going to be four teams with at least 100 points in 10 days or less that will be done for the season. It's crazy to think about how it is and how, yeah, I mean, the eight, I could make a case for every single team that's in the playoffs on the East being able to reach the Stanley Cup, which I never is like that. So Florida Panthers draw the Washington Capitals. We know the Washington Capitals well. Uh, I mean, they won the Stanley Cup within five years ago. They still have Alex Ovechkin. This is going to be a real series. Um, you know, even though they got the one seed, this is no walkthrough with the eight. No, there certainly isn't. And, and, and I've said it a number of times, any team that's got an Alex Ovechkin on their team, and one of the most prolific goal scorers in the history of the NHL, you can never take lightly. And, and as you mentioned, it wasn't too long ago that the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup, and their core is still intact. They still have those five, six, seven players that were the core for those, that Stanley Cup, Stanley Cup winning season. They're still with the team. They're healthy, and they'll be in the lineup uh, when they play the Florida Panthers. Ira, you have anything for Randy? Randy, I think it's interesting that the Florida Panthers made. Rarely would you find a coach, a team that made a coaching change with the, who also won the Presidents Cup. Now it was sort of an unforced and coaching change, but how do you think that coaching chain affected them during this year and going into the Stanley Cup playoffs? There was there was really no effect at all. Uh, it was it was fairly seamless, and of course there was a lot of questions. It, and, and, and maybe a few people that were a little, maybe a little suspicious on how uh, the coaching change would affect the overall play. And it really didn't, really didn't change the dynamics of this hockey club throughout the whole year. They practiced the same. They, they played the same pace. Um, and when you have 15 players on the team, on the, on the roster of the Florida Panthers that had career years, that uh, consistency that we witnessed throughout the season and after the coaching change was remarkable. And I give full credit uh, to Andrew Burnett and his coaching staff and the management. They really uh, were entrusted by this hockey club. And, and then the players, they bought in. They, they loved the system. 
that the pre- previous coach with Joe Quenville had instilled. Uh, they knew that that's how they were going to have success. And to be able to continue that on all season long was, was not only impressive, but uh, it was remarkable as well, the consistency of this team. So the coaching change really had no effect. So, Randy, uh, before I let you go, tickets are not going to be easy to come by for, for this series or any series going forward. I do you know, plan to see the Florida Panthers making it through a round or two here at least. So how do we get tickets? FLA Live Arena is one of the best places in all of sports to see an event. How do we get tickets to see them in the playoffs? Well, you, for fans that are interested in, in late, I, I call it latecomers uh, and that, is just make sure you check on floridapanthers.com and ticketmaster.com. Because of a, any sporting event, there's going to be team and league holdbacks, but if those tickets aren't being used, they'll be you know released to the public and that. And so it's updated multiple times per day. Uh, they expect big crowds. It's going to be if it's not sold out for the first two games, will be very very close. Uh, I'm not quite sure about game five or possibly if they need a game seven, but the first two games. So go on Ticketmaster.com, FloridaPanthers.com, uh, or you can call the puck line. There are sales uh, representatives, uh, assistants uh, with the Florida Panthers that are standing by at uh, 954-835-PUCK. That's the puck line. Randy Moeller and Mike Balsamo, thanks for joining us here on Iron Sports. Great stuff from Randy Moeller. Thank you, as always. We are just a minute or two away from Brittany Yurton from TVG and NBC joining us. But Ira, first, what's going on in uh, boxing MMA? Well, this past weekend, Shakir Stevenson uh, unified the junior lightweight titles Big win over the other title holder, Oscar Valdez. And then coming up this week, I mean, if we don't have enough sports, we have Canelo Alvarez, the number one fighter in the world, fighting Dimitri Bivol. And it's really, it's only a 4-1 to one favorite, which usually he's been like the 10-12-1 to 12 to one favorite. So this should be a good fight. We had Kelly Pavlik on last couple weeks ago previewing this fight. And then we have a great uh, UFC fight between Oliveira and Gaethje uh, for the lightweight title where they're, it's almost, they're, they're even. For this, and it's going to be exciting to see two of the best lightweight fighters. This is the division that McGregor fights in. Both of these fighters are far better than McGregor, so I'm excited for the, the boxing this weekend, the the uh, um, MMA fights this weekend, uh, Formula One this weekend, basketball, hockey, everything's coming out here. Let's go to Brittany Yurton. This is Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. We're honored to have Brittany Yurton on. Brittany, everyone who watches horse racing would have seen her on TVG, NBC. She's everywhere. She's the, the host of all their specials and, of course, the Kentucky Derby coming up. Brittany, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot believe we're just moments away from the first Saturday in May. It just feels like it sprung up upon us out of nowhere. Well, we're calling you from West Palm Beach, and I looked at the last year's Kentucky Derby on the ratings, and Louisville was, of course, number one, and number two was Fort Myers, and three was Knoxville, but four was West Palm Beach, five was Cincinnati. So you're talking to an area that really is into horse racing and loves, certainly, the Kentucky Derby. Well, I love to hear that. Love the support. You'll find pockets all over the country that are just so into horse racing. That might surprise you outside of horse country like Kentucky. So uh, that's so wonderful to hear. Well, we're, of course, talking about the Kentucky Derby. And, you know, the one thing I was talking about someone about betting, and I said I love golf because it's the only sport where, like, Scotty Scheffler was in the Masters, and it was, like, 20 to 1. So you can have the hottest golfer mm-hmm. in the world, and it's like a long shot at 20 to 1. And I think that's what, what's, oh, yeah. neat, what's neat about this race today at the Kentucky Derby is that really because there's really no true favorite that you really could get some great odds where you can justify maybe 13 or 14 horses saying, oh, this is what I've looked at. I think this horse is going to win, and no one's going to say, you're totally crazy. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard about. 
especially in the Kentucky Derby, because you have 20 horses in the starting gate. There's three-year-olds, and to be honest, at any point in time, one of these three-year-olds could take a massive step forward. But I think particularly with this crop that we have, they're so evenly matched. And I mean that on a higher scale, a higher level. These horses are very, very talented. But there isn't one superstar that's just like laying over the entire field. But that's what makes it such a great betting race, like you said. I think the favorite will probably be somewhere around 5-1, to one, which is a great price, considering that's the favorite. And I guess the the favorite supposedly by default, so right now would be Epicenter, Louisiana Derby winner. Right. Um, and I just realized trainer Steve Asmussen has 9,722 wins, but not a win in the Derby, which is pretty amazing with that many wins and no Derby wins. But tell us a little about Ep- Epicenter. Uh, there's so much to like about Epicenter. You can't really fault that he's beaten most of the field that he's going to face in the Kentucky Derby. So that's one thing. Two, he's incredibly tactical. And we've seen that in the last, I believe, eight years that the winner of the Kentucky Derby, or I should say the horse that crossed the wire first, has been within three lengths of the leader at the quarter mile pole. So it's very important to have tactical speed, which this horse has. But what he proved in the Louisiana Derby, and I think it's definitely worth noting, is that he could overcome adversity. If he doesn't get the lead, that's okay. And considering a lot can happen going into that first turn, it's nice to know that this horse can also come from off the pace. But if he needs to utilize his speed, he can. So that's why the horse is likely going to be favored. There's just a lot to like about the horse. And how can you not run Steve Asmussen? He's won everything under the sun. He is the all-time leading trainer in terms of North American wins, and he's never won the Kentucky Derby, as you said. So that would be a very big moment. And maybe turn to another trainer, Chad Brown, with 2,100 wins. He's had four straight years. He had the Eclipse Award as a top trainer. He's coming in with Zandam, won the Bluegrass Stakes. What about that horse in terms of, and this is another one of those cases where it's like maybe it's Chad Brown's turn to finally win the Derby. It's funny, when a lot of people think of trainer Chad Brown, they think about grass racing, but he is a very capable dirt trainer as well. And he's had some nice horses make it to the Kentucky Derby, including Good Magic, who ran behind eventual Triple Crown winner Justify. I love Zandon. So does everybody else. (laughs) I would not be surprised if this horse is very close in terms of price to Epicenter. But what I love so much about Zandon was how visually impressive his bluegrass performance was. He came from well off the pace, and that's just him. You can't take him out of his running style. Flavian Pratt has said the same thing. He can't be quicker from the gate than he has been in the past. It's just him. But what I found most impressive about his bluegrass victory is his ability to close into slow fractions. That doesn't normally happen. You usually need a fast pace up front for a deep closer. He didn't need that. And he's shown in the past, if you look at his previous past performances, that he can be somewhat closer if need be. But I don't think Flavian Pratt is going to take him out of his running style whatsoever. So the only knock I have on Zandon, because he's a visually incredible-looking specimen for an equine athlete, uh, and what he did was visually impressive in the bluegrass, he is up against it in terms of history, where you need to be coming from, where the winners come from in terms of the pace scenario. But... If he could pull the upset or buck the trend, should I say, I think he could beat a horse. And then two horses that I think are in somewhat similar in terms of they were both trained by Bob Baffert and then switched over to Tim mm-hmm. Yakin's uh, stable. Um, have both have jockeys. Messier has John Velasquez, three-time Derby winner as, as a jockey. And Tabia has Mike Smith, two-time winner as the jockey. And they both ran in the right. San Diego Derby, one-two. What about those two horses in, in, in terms of coming for this race? 
so much to like about both of them. Kaba could be a freak. He could be the next superstar, but he's up against it. I mean, to ask of a horse in their third career start to go a mile and a quarter against the best three-year-olds in the country, it's obviously a lot to ask of him. But we thought it was a lot to ask in his second career start to go two turns in a grade one, a mile and an eighth, and he did it. So I would not be surprised if he were to wear the roses the first Saturday in May. But I just think it's, it's a lot, a lot to ask for a young horse. Um, Tim Yakin, if he didn't see fit, that this horse could handle it all, he wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have sent the horse over there. Messier, I really, really like based off of his last performance because the Santa Anita Derby was not the big dance. It's the Kentucky Derby. And so I think that John Velasquez, once he knew that Tava was going by, he wrapped up on him, he held second, he got the points he needed to enter the starting gate. Uh, this horse can be tactical. He's not the type of horse that I think is going to fold underneath pressure of the Kentucky Derby and the pomp and circumstance of Churchill Downs. Uh, Messier, a really talented runner that I think could peak on the right day. But we're down here in West Palm Beach, and certainly Gulfstream is a popular track that people go to. And again, the winner of the Florida Derby every year is someone who, you know, there's been some great winners to come out of the Florida Derby from Big Brown to Justify. But uh, our uh, White Albero um, certainly won at the, Flo- the Florida Derby just uh, a few weeks ago. What do you think about White Albero? But again, not the odds, not the favorite, something that coming out of the Florida Derby that someone looks like is going to be this big favorite. White Abario is an interesting horse for me here because the Florida Derby is being talked about as one of the least likely or weakest, I guess you could say, prep races in terms of all of them. Yeah, the Wood Memorial also uh, probably not the strongest prep race, but for whatever reason, the Florida Derby is completely being overlooked. I like White Abario. How can you knock what he's done thus far? Another horse that has shown versatility for trainer Safi Joseph Jr., young guy who came from Barbados. He's the youngest Barbados Triple Crown winner, so a lot of great stories around there. Um, and, of course, his jockey, Tyler Gaffleone, who is from Florida. So that Florida Derby win was big for him. It's being overlooked because it wasn't the fastest Kentucky Derby prep race, so a lot of handicappers. If you look at buyer speed figures, Ragazin numbers, it's just not as strong as some of the other prep races. But if you look at the years of Florida Derby to Kentucky Derby winners, it has the most in terms of a prep race. So it's been a very, very productive prep race in terms of the first Saturday in May. But why to borrow, you will probably get a very good price on because for whatever reason, he's kind of flying under the radar. That, that race in particular is being overlooked. And then some of these horses, again, the horses from the foreign horses, I'm mentioning Crown Pride is a Japanese horse, won the UAE Derby, and Summer is Tomorrow, where all the stars have been Dubai. Doesn't seem like initially heavy bet, but is there any chance, is this some, one of the first years that maybe a foreign horse might just come in and surprise everybody? I have a hard time seeing it happening with these two runners, but why not? Because of especially the dominance that we've seen globally from the Japanese contenders. They had their very first Breeders' Cup winner with Love's Only You just last year. They dominated in Hong Kong, in Saudi Arabia, and Dubai. So they could do it in Kentucky, absolutely. I just It's hard for me to back a horse like Crown Pride or Summer is Tomorrow. Summer is Tomorrow is absolutely going to be a pace factor. But from a win end, it's hard for me to back either of them. But maybe... 
I, I wouldn't put it past a Japanese dominance. <laughs> well, we have talking to Brittany Yurton from TVG and NBC. Thanks a lot for coming on. And I guess the one of the other final questions would be. I just named a bunch of horses, but I, I have, I've only touched the surface. I think we only talked about half the field. Did I miss any <laughs> horse that you like? Is there someone where I can't believe I didn't bring this up on the, you know, this is a horse that I like a lot. Well, I think keep your eye on charge it. He is coming out of that Florida Derby, but he's still very green. He only has three starts underneath his belt, but I think the talent is there. And the buzz horse that I'm hearing right now is Barber road. He's a horse that always shows up. He's not heavy on the win end, but I would definitely include him in your superfecta. Is there a favorite? Who is your favorite? But sort of before we get to the post positions, who is your favorite without knowing what the post positions are? Oh my goodness, that is such a tough question because, as you said, there are so many directions that you could go. I would say Vanden right now. Sanded. And then one my one friend who's love who's goes to every I think I've missed a derby in like forty or fifty years, except for the pandemic one. But he said he goes, ask her, ask Brittany about the Wednesday. I guess they go down to Jack Ruby's like all the trainers and jockeys go after the post position. Give us a little flavor of what goes on in Louisville during those days for those for you know, just before the Derby. I mean, it's all horse racing all the time, and that's what's so great about it. All the connections start flying in early, and you run into a lot of people you know, and everyone is in, usually, a great mood because it's the buildup. All of the heavy work is done for the trainers, for the horses. Yes, they'll go out in the morning. They'll have a gallop. They'll have their jogs. Uh, but the, the anticipation begins to build, and it's just it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, you're in a town that truly appreciates horse racing, and this is their biggest day of the year, the Kentucky Derby. And, hey, don't get me wrong. I'm so excited for the Kentucky Derby, but the Kentucky Oaks is going to be a sensational race. It is stacked from top to bottom with elite talent. Well, Brittany, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. I know you're super busy and can't wait to watch you this weekend on TVG and NBC. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure chatting with you all. Thanks for racing. Thank you. She's just fantastic. It's Brittany Yerton here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, we're out of time, but what do you have planned for this week? I know you're going to be pretty busy. Two heat games, and I can't wait to go down. We're going to see the Formula One down at uh, the Hard Rock Stadium, probably Friday for uh, practice, Saturday for qualifying, and Sunday for the race. It sounds like uh, some really good stuff. I'm very excited for you. Don't forget to follow along at Ira on Sports. Thanks so much to John Cooper, Raul Bosell, Randy Moeller, and Brittany Yerton. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.